Lord, we do thank you tonight. Thank you again for your work of creation, for your work of redemption, Lord. Thank you that you did not leave humanity to its own devices. You did not walk away. You're not the great clockmaker who wound us up and set us in motion and then abandoned us. No, God, you are the intimate one of the universe. Like Aaron said, your mighty works are not just the great things of nature or the power of the universe, but it's the tenderness of the still small voice. Like for Elijah. For the whirlwind came and you were not in it, and the fire storm came and you were not in it, and the earthquake came and you were not in it, and Elijah knew. He knew you weren't there. But a still small voice cried out to him. And he knew it was you. God, thank you that at the most intimate level, you know our hearts, you know our needs, you know what we think would be good for us and may be awful for us. You know the things that we would settle for that we think maybe, hey, this is good, but it's not great doesn't live up to what you'd want for us. God, thank you for not leaving us there. Thank you that even your discipline, even your punishments, even your judgment uh, is done in righteousness. It's done in mercy. We can trust your discipline. We can trust what you have to say to us and, and what you might have to do to us. We can trust in you because we know you're working all things for good. That's not to say the pain isn't real. It's not to say that the grief is not huge. But you and your kindness are leading us to better things. And even if our life on this earth is hell, it's miserable, it's suffering, it's pain, there's a greater life beyond. This is not the end. We thank you that we have something to look to beyond this, that we don't have to fear or grieve like the world does. But we hope in Jesus. We trust that his spirit is a down payment, a deposit, a guarantee of what's to come. Be with us tonight. May your voice speak. Would each one of us hear that still small voice like Elijah did? Do your mighty works tonight in the hearts of the men and women here. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, tonight, we're going to continue on in Genesis. If you remember where we were last week, uh, we were at uh, the end of the flood story. We ended at the end of the flood story with, with Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives all coming out of the ark. And the animals, remember, they fled. The terror and fear of man would be on them. 
And so they, they went their own way. And the Lord gave them this great promise of the rainbow. That when he saw it, he would be reminded to never again destroy humanity for what it may deserve. He would never again destroy it with the flood like he had in the days of Noah. And so we're left at this moment of, of a new humanity, a restart. Noah, his three sons, his wife and his son's wives, and, and that's all there is of humanity left. And so we think, hey, maybe this is a new chance, right? Noah's a righteous man. He's blameless among his generation. He's one who walks with God. Maybe this is the reset. Uh, and if that's what you believe, man, you're quickly in for a rude awakening. Tonight we'll be going from Genesis 9.18 to 11.9. If you have your Bibles, feel free to open them. I have the scriptures up here so you don't need to. Tonight's titled, The Nations Scattered. The Nations Scattered. We'll see what happens when we get to Genesis 11 and hear about what's traditionally known as the Tower of Babel. And the last great judgment of this prehistory section of Genesis, right? This is the last moment we'll read of this. And from here on, after tonight, we're into the history of the patriarchs. We start our story with Abram. We begin to see the history of the defined people of God and, and who the patriarchs were, normal people, living life with, with their God, the God of the universe. But for tonight, we end the prehistory. So, Genesis 9. Now the sons of Noah who came out of the ark were Shem and Ham and Japheth, and Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the whole earth was populated. So we all of humanity now, if we look at this story where we've come from, all of humanity has descended from Adam and Eve up to this point of Noah and his wife. All of humanity's been wiped out, and now again all of humanity can trace their lineage to Noah and his wife, right? He is a now a, another figure like Adam who everyone traces their line to on this earth. Okay? And so it says the whole earth was populated. They're going to fulfill that mandate. Remember the mandate that God gave them. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. It's going to say the whole earth is populated from these three sons. But first, an interlude, Noah Noah decides to relax a little after he gets off the ark. It says Noah began farming and he planted a vineyard. There's no other indication that anyone had planted a vineyard, but Noah seems to be the first. And of course he drank of the wine and became drunk and he uncovered himself in his, inside his tent. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his brother, or excuse me, of his father, and told his two brothers outside, but Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it upon both their shoulders and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. And their faces were turned away so that they did not see their father's nakedness. An odd story. Now, uh, there's multiple interpretations of this passage. At its base level, if you just read it like straightforward, it's an issue of honor and shame. 
right? This idea of seeing his father's nakedness, Ham is, is dishonoring his father. That's the core issue. And so Noah is shamed. It's shameful for your nakedness to be seen. Remember, this goes straight back to Genesis 2, doesn't it? Right? The end of Genesis 2, what were Adam and Eve? They were naked and unashamed. And then when they ate of the fruit, their shamefulness was seen, right? And so they no longer, people are no longer normally naked, right? And so for him to uncover himself inside his tent, this is a shameful thing for people to see. That's what the text is implying. And so what ends up happening is Ham comes in, and rather than honoring his father, rather than caring for his father, rather than covering him, what's he do? He goes out and shames his father to his brothers, right? That's the point of what he's doing. He comes out and he belittles his father. He's like, I've seen my father's nakedness, right? I've seen, he, who knows? And maybe he made some crude joke. It doesn't say but the point is he dishonors his father by coming out and talking to his brothers about it. And his brothers, by contrast, what do they do? It says they walk in backwards so that they won't see their father's nakedness and they take a, a, a sheet, a, a, a garment, right, some kind of cloak or something, and they place it on their shoulders and they walk backwards and then cover him so that he's covered. They honor their father, right? That's the essence of the story. Now, it seems like a lot uh, for what's about to transpire and be said to Canaan that just seeing his dad naked would cause that. It seems like an excessive punishment. But to be fair, we don't know the culture of that day. And again, we as a culture really don't understand honor and shame that well. We don't, it's not the categories in which we think. So it's very possible that this just boils down to a story of honor and shame. The unusual thing in what has led many uh, other interpretations of this passage is that um, this uncovering nakedness is often used euphemistically for sexual intercourse. So there is some, some kind, and of course, if you know your, your Bible, uh, one of the most notorious things about the Canaanites is their sexual deviancy, their sexual practices. They are a people who are defined as a fertility cult, right? They have temple prostitutes. They have um, all kinds of deviant sexual practices uh, that Israel is told to beware, right? And it's all related around this sexuality concept. And I think that's one reason people see that in this story. Because it ultimately, the, what does the curse come down upon? It's not upon Ham, it's upon Canaan. So that's one reason people look back at that, and we'll see that in just a minute. But, but also, this uncovering nakedness, like I said, is used euphemistically of some kind of sexual contact. And so the, the other interpretation of this passage is that some uh, deviant sexual intercourse or something happens in the tent that is unknown. Uh, and of course, that's very graphic. That's very serious. Um, but the truth is, uh, the Bible doesn't shy away from those things, does it? That, that's the reality of the Bible. Uh, the, the darkest, most uh, evil parts of humanity are in display in the Scriptures. We, the Scriptures are much less reticent to talk about the darkness of humanity than we would be even, than we would be in conversation. And, and that's what the scriptures uh, openly do. Obviously, we're going to see 
uh, Genesis 18, right? And we're going to get to Sodom and Gomorrah. That's a deep, dark tale of human depravity, right? So it's possible that this is just honor and shame, but it's also possible there was some untoward sexual contact between uh, Ham and his father. It's unknown. But what happens is when Noah awakes from his, his drunkenness, he knew. He knew immediately what his youngest son had done to him. So he, he proclaims a curse. He says this, So he said, Cursed be Canaan. A servant of servants he shall be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. Noah lived 350 years after the flood. So all the days of Noah were 950 years and he died. So here's the thing. Again, this is a passage that is fraught with a, a dark history. It's not just the passage itself and what happens in it. But if you know even American history, this passage in Genesis 10 that we will see next is one of the texts that is used to support slavery of African Americans, right? Of Africans at the time. They weren't African Americans then. But uh, why? Why was this passage used in this way? Because the descendants of Ham are the peoples that inhabited Africa. And since they were the peoples who inhabited Africa, this passage was often used as a proof text to say, see, the Bible says they should be slaves. These are slave peoples. That's a dark history of this passage. Why does he curse Canaan and not Ham? That's an interesting interpretive question. Why does he curse his grandson and not his son? I think the best explanation is that Ham has just been blessed by God. You do not curse those who have been blessed, right? You do not curse those who have been blessed. The Lord has just blessed Ham and said, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And so I think Noah, not to go against God's blessing, curses his son Canaan. Also, though, if you know, as we've talked about, the history of the Exodus, the history of the people of Israel, looms large over Genesis, as I've said many times. Canaan is going to be the peoples that Israel displace to take their land, right? The Canaanites are the ones who inhabit the land of Israel. So this is very significant as a moment for Israel to look at and say, Oh, these peoples are the peoples that God is judging, that he is condemning for their great sin. And we're going to see that theme of the Canaanites' great sin coming before God over and over and over in Genesis. And that's leading to what? Joshua, right? It leads to Joshua, in which they're destroying the Canaanites and, and sending them out of the land. For the Lord says, not yet, for their sin has not reached its full measure. And when their sin reaches its full measure, then the Lord sends the Israelites in to kill them, right? To displace them out of the land and that Israel would inhabit the land, their land. Okay, so there's that dark story. 
And of course, I, I, I don't think I said this yet, but um, that's not a viable interpretation of this passage to say that this supports um, slavery, right? I, I hope that we can all see that, that that was a misinterpretation of this passage. Uh, this is a story about the people of Israel. This is not a story about America and whether it's okay for them to have slaves or not. Um, that is a huge misinterpretation of what's going on. So it should be said. All right, Genesis 10. Genesis 10 is interesting. It's called, uh, in scholarly circles, it's called the Table of Nations. The Table of Nations. And why is that? Well, because it lays out who all these different peoples are. And what the main concern of the Table of Nations is, is where did all the people, where did all these nation states come from? Where did they originate from after the flood? How did we end up in the situation we're in today? Not necessarily us, but to the first readers of Genesis, right? How did these peoples come about? They had to have all come from Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And so they lay out who all these peoples are. And what you'll see is all the major players for the Old Testament show up in these lists. All the people that Israel is going to know and interact with and have you know, confrontations and alliances with throughout its history, you know, up to the end of the Old Testament, they all show up here. They all make, uh, make a place here. Okay? So, verse 1 of Genesis 10. Now, these are the records of the generations of Shem, Ham, and Japheth, the sons of Noah, and sons were born to them after the flood. This won't do much for anyone listening to the podcast, but I thought it'd be interesting for you. Here's a map of what essentially is the world according to ancient Israel, right? This is their world. They really didn't go beyond the borders of this, this area you see here. This is their world. And so they kind of see this as the limits of what their world is. And we're going to look at that um, in a little bit as we see where these peoples are coming from. <clears throat> so the, the genealogy of these people starts with Japheth. They're the people that the littlest is known about, at least biblically, because um, they're the people that are farthest from Israel. They're the people that Israel has the least contact with. And so they are talked about first, and they're talked about very briefly. But it says this, The sons of Japheth were Gomer and Magog and Madai and Javan and Tubal and Meshech and Tiras. The sons of Gomer were Ashkenaz and Rephath and Togarmah. The sons of Javan were Elisha and Tarshish, Ketim and Dodanim. From these, the coastlands of the nations were separated into their lands, everyone according to his language, according to their families, into their nations. Now, we can't place every people group in this, right? Scholars can't. They can place a lot more than I can, though. But I'm just going to give you some of these major names, just some of the ones that we know we can identify. So Madai, Tarshish, and coastlands of the nations are speaking to very, three very specific things. Madai, do you know where Madai is? Madai is the Medes, what became the Medes, the Median Empire, right? And they, they joined with the Persians. And where is modern-day Persia? That's, Iran. I, that's Iran, yes, right. That's Iran of today. So, the Medeans ended up, uh, the Madai, as it says, ended up in that area. They spread out. 
Next is Tarshish. Tarshish is very, very interesting because Tarshish is never identified in Scripture, and yet it's used a lot, quite a bit. Uh, the major passage we hear about Tarshish is, of course, Jonah, right? Jonah is going to flee to Tarshish. And all we know is that it's west across the water from Israel. So west across the water. There's been a lot of places that have been suggested, but like I told you, this is kind of the edge of their world in their view. Uh, one of the most interesting is that it's been suggested it's, it's Carthage, somewhere you know, along this coast in North Africa, that there's uh, some kind of large city or settlement there uh, that Jonah's fleeing to. But whatever the case, it's across the water. That's how Noah ends up on the boat, right? It's to the west across the water. And where is Noah going, by the way? He's going to... Noah and Jonah. Sorry, Jonah. Excuse me. Yeah. Where is Jonah going to? He's going to Assyria, right? That's where the Lord's told him to go. Assyria is over that way to the east. So what does Jonah do? He goes exactly the opposite direction. He goes west across the water to Tarshish. The coastlands, all of those other names you see are various names uh, for Greek people or the island people that inhabited places like Cyprus and Crete and the Grecian Isles. So when it talks about filling the coastlands, it's really this area that's kind of modern day Turkey, right? Or modern day Greece, all these little islands in here and this kind of Asia Minor, as it was called in New Testament times. So you end up with Japheth's territory being in these two major regions. So you have Japheth spread out to the north. And they're the northern people and the western people. And you don't hear much about them in the Bible, right? That's why we start with Japheth. They're, they're way out there. And of course, if we look at the makeup of this room, we're all from Japheth, right? We're Indo-Europeans. We're people who are from this little-known tribe somehow brought into the history of Israel, right? That's what Jesus has done. These far-flung nations somehow become part of the story of God. Next, it talks about Ham. Okay, Ham is important and is significant because the sons of Ham were Cush and Mitzrayim and Put and Canaan, Canaan, right? These are three major empires uh, three major, I guess Canaan's not really an empire, but three major areas that are significant conflict. Cush is a modern-day Ethiopia in the Sudan, but it's also kind of used as a, as a catch-all for these darker-skinned peoples of Africa, right? So the contact they would have was mainly from the Sudan and, and Ethiopia, below Egypt, right? That was kind of the farthest south the, the world of the Israelites went. Mitzrayim is the name for, for Egypt in Hebrew. So Mitzrayim, it's the, it's the twin lands, right? It's two lands. There's an upper Egypt and a lower Egypt, if, you've ever, if you know anything about Egypt. And so it's used a dual word to talk about it, Mitzrayim. Egypt. And the Canaanites, right? They inhabited this land of Israel. What do you notice about these names? I'm going to read this section and think about that. Think about that question. The sons of Cush were Seba and Havilah and Sabta and Ramah and Sabteca. And the sons of Ramah were Sheba and Dedan. Now Cush became the father of Nimrod. Interesting name. We obviously don't give it its due considering we use it as an insult. 
The father of Nimrod, he became a mighty one on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. He even has a proverb. He's, he's that good at hunting and city building. The beginning of his kingdom, Nimrod's kingdom, was Babel and Erech and Akkad and Kalna in the land of Shinar. From that land he went forth into Assyria, and he built Nineveh and Rechabot Ir and Kalah, and resin between Nineveh and Kalah, that is the great city. Nimrod has some really significant places that he's related to, right? One, we have Babylon, which is modern-day Iraq, right? You have Babylon right there, south of Baghdad, would be the traditional Babylon. And then he goes and creates Nineveh, which is the great city of Assyria, right? It's the (coughs) capital of Assyria at one point in its history, which is further north. Nimrod, interestingly, makes these great empires. Now, they're not empires at that time, but they both become major empires and the two greatest enemies of Israel, right? Because Assyria is the empire that crushes northern, the northern kingdom, which is called Israel. And of course, Babylon is the king, uh, kingdom, the empire that destroys Judah and Jerusalem, okay? What's the point of this? This Ham territory with Nimrod over there, these are the central empire enemies of Israel. That's what's so significant. It even says this is what this is where the Philistines came from later on in the passage, right? These are the central enemies of Israel. All the great empires, all the great peoples that will oppress Israel, that isn't just interfamily fighting, as we'll see the family line develops when we get through gen- the rest of Genesis. But the major empires that oppress Israel are all here in Ham's descendants. Ham has, a, a, has a, a dark history as it relates to the people of Israel because they have been conquered by all of these, right? First in Egypt, and then in Assyria, then Babylon. All these empires come to, to oppress Israel at different points in its history. Okay? Then it gives this little aside. The territory of the Canaanite extended from Sidon as you go toward Gerar, as far as Gaza. As you go towards Sodom and Gomorrah and Adma and Zeboim, as far as Lasha. These are the sons of Ham, according to their families, according to their languages, by their lands, by their nations. Why does it give these boundaries of the land of Canaan? Why do you think it does that? It's preempting the promise to Abraham, right? Again, this is what I'm saying. The, the promises of God loom large over Genesis. So the, the people who have been promised this land that they're talking about prior to the promise of it are saying, hey, this land, the Canaanite land, that's the land which God promised us. That's the land which the Lord promised to give to us. And here are its boundaries. Right? They're already foreshadowing what's going to be talked about when the Lord says, I will give you this land, even though it hasn't been mentioned yet. Okay, And then Shem. Shem, uh, he also had children born to him. Right? Elam and Ashur and Arpakshad and Lud and Aram. Right? And so Aram, if you know, Aram is modern day Syria, okay? Damascus. Uh, all these are, this is the modern day Aram. 
And then all these other names that I've mentioned here and haven't mentioned, they're all thought of to be the Arabic tribes, right? The, the various nomadic tribes of, of Saudi Arabia and Yemen, right? And they, they become um, all through this land. So really you see, if you look at putting all these peoples together, they're expanding to fill the entire world of Israel, right? You see they, they are spreading out. They aren't all in one spot anymore. It's not like they came out of the ark and all of a sudden they just stayed somewhere. Somehow these people have gone to the ends of the earth. But how and why? Right? These are the sons of Shem according to their families, according to their languages, by their lands, according to their nations. Verse 31. These are the families of the sons of Noah according to their genealogies, by their nations. And out of these, the nations were separated on the earth after the flood. Well, that's a nice story. All these places separated. And that's how we have all these people. The question is, what event caused them to scatter, caused them to disperse? And of course, that's what Genesis 11 wants to tell us. It's an odd it's an odd thing because Genesis 10 is telling us where the people went before we hear about why they went. That's the way Genesis is framed. When you read the table of nations, you're reading about what happened after the Tower of Babel. So it's an odd framing for us who think so chronologically. We're like, well, why wouldn't you put the Tower of Babel first and explain all the people went their ways? That's not what the Bible does. In Genesis 10, it tells you these are all the people's. And they went their ways, and they all scattered, and they filled up the whole earth. But why? Why did they scatter? Well, Genesis 11 is going to tell us. Genesis 11. Now the whole earth used the same language in the same words. It came about as they journeyed east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. You may have missed it, but the land of Shinar was already mentioned in Genesis 10. It was part of the kingdom of Nimrod. It was the plain that he settled. They said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they used brick for stone, and they used tar for mortar. They said, Come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven and let us make for ourselves a name. Otherwise, we will be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. Right? The people are concerned that they're going to be scattered, which is an odd thing in the narrative. right? Because we know, if you know this story, they're going to be scattered. They seem to be afraid of that happening for some reason. But it says they're all using the same language. They're as one people. And we just read about all these nations spreading out. So this must precursor what we just read. They're one people with one language, the same words. And they have this new technology. They have bricks and they have mortar. And they're going to they're gonna build this great tower. This huge tower that reaches up into the sky. That touches the heavens. Right? The home of God. And they're going to make a name for themselves. And of course, what's, what should already be telling us that there's something to be wary of here is that they want to make a name for themselves, right? They're not content to let the Lord make a name for them. 
which it will be one of the great promises to Abram, right? I will make a name for you, Abram. But here, the people want to make a name for themselves. And we should be, again, we should immediately know that something's amiss. Because if we look back to the creation story, the naming part, who names humans, who names humanity? Well, it's God. God names Adam. And here the people say, we don't want the name that you have for us. We're going to make a name for ourselves. We will be great and make, make of ourselves what we want to make. Right? So the Lord came down to see the city in the tower which the sons of men had built. And the Lord said, behold, they are one people and they all have the same language. And this is what they began to do, and now nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down there and confuse their language so that they will not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of the whole earth, and they stopped building the city. Therefore its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole earth. And from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the whole earth. I think Genesis 10, excuse me, Genesis 11 and 10, it's in both. Um, I think this is one of the, one of the worst uh, translation errors. It, it's not really an error, it's just a choice. But I think it's a terrible translation for people to understand what's going on in the Tower of Babel. And that relates to the word Babel itself. Uh, Babel is a word that is consistently translated throughout the entire Old Testament uh, with one name, and only in Genesis 10 and 11 is it translated Babel. You know what it's consistently translated as elsewhere? Babylon. It is Babylon. Every time you see the word Babylon... In the Old Testament, the word that stands behind it in Hebrew is Babel. Babel. Only here in Genesis 10 and 11 do they not translate it Babylon. They translate it Babel. And I'm sure that has to do with the fact that they're trying to give the etymology of it. Right? They're, they're saying this word, it means this. And so they translate it with the actual word behind it. But it's consistently Babylon. And like I told you about the land of Shinar, right? It's saying this is Nimrod's kingdom. What was part of Nimrod's kingdom? Babylon. Babylon. He was the one who went and made Babylon. This is Babylon. By the way, you know what Nimrod's name means? We, we may rebel. It's a rebellion term. His name is about rebellion. Right? It's Babylon from the earliest days, is a symbol for human pride and human self-definition, that we will make a name for ourselves. If you wonder why John chooses Babylon to be what he makes it in the Revelation, in his apocalypse, it's because of the history of Babylon. This is the beginning of Babylon. Where human pride said we will make a name for ourselves. It represents everything haughty and proud and despicable in humans. And so John uses Babylon as the quintessential worldly city. right? The quintessential evil place is Babylon. 
And it's because of this story and the rest of the stories of Babylon through the scriptures. But here it's translated Babel. So unless you know Hebrew, you're missing out that this is about Babylon. It's about Babylon. Okay, so the Lord sees it and he says this great statement. I I love this statement because it's such a testament to what humans are. And yet it's also kind of hard to believe that the Lord actually says this. He says, nothing they purpose will be impossible for them. The power of human unity is unmatched. The power of humans to do what they will when they are of one accord is is unfathomable. And so the Lord, in judgment of their pride and their haughtiness and their self-naming, he confuses their language. What's the point of the confusion of language? It's so that they cannot be of one accord. They cannot be one people. Because if they can't speak to each other, they cannot plot together, right? And they're scattered by their tribes and their nations and their race and their languages, it says, by their tongues. But that statement always strikes me because I think about the truth of that statement. I mean, the the things that human beings have done are unbelievable. We just landed a rover on Mars just very recently. That is unbelievable. We, we took the materials of our Earth and made it into a machine to rove other planets. This is not a political statement at all, by the way. But think, just think about the reality of this. I know it's hard to detach that from all of this, but... We made a vaccine for a disease in one year. That is truly a miracle. We were able to make a vaccine for a disease that we did not know about prior to this year, this last year, and in a year's time produce a reliable vaccine by manipulating genetic code using mRNA. That is unbelievable. That is true power. The one I always go to, I'm going to say it, because I always say it when I talk about Tower of Babel, but it's like 10 years old, but I still love it. We were able to splice spider genes into goats so that you could milk goats and pull out spider silk so that we could have more spider silk to make Kevlar armor. That's unbelievable to me. And like I said, that's 10 years ago we did that. Unfathomable. And yet, as much as we can do, as, as powerful and cool and amazing as the things we can do when we work in unity, our capacity for evil is unparalleled when we work together too. I've always said, I don't think people are more evil now than we've ever been. I don't think we're declining in terms of our evil per se. I think people have always been evil. Look at Cain and Abel, right? That's the first post-Eden story. Cain murders his brother. But what is unique is that we've mass-produced evil 
in a way that no other generation could. We have made, through technology and through the internet and through everything that we have, we have made doing evil um, simple and easy and prosperous to us. Not only do we do evil, but we can export it to the rest of the world. That is unbelievable. We can drop a bomb and literally phase people out of existence at the atomic level. We can drop an atomic bomb and 200,000 people die immediately. That's unfathomable to me. We've killed millions of babies just in this country alone. I think it's 70 million since Roe v. Wade. Because we can do it simply, easily. It's, it's very simple to us. It's mass-produced. It's unfathomable, the amount of evil we can do. And the Lord says, no, I will not let them have their way. I will not let them plot out their evil plans. Right? We already saw the thoughts of their hearts are evil continually. And he's going to show mercy to them. But he still has judgment. This is not a flood judgment. This is, this is, that's probably what they deserve. But that's not a flood judgment. But it is a judgment. And it's the last, it's the last real judgment that we see that are really human-wide, right? Of these early prehistory judgments. The reality of sin entering all human life in Genesis 3. The flood wiping humanity out for a fresh restart. In Genesis 6 through 9, and then this last one, our languages have been confused. And we still have that today, don't we? We still live with that. The inability to speak to every person, right? We don't all share one tongue. We, there's many people on this planet we can't speak to. If we were to just go up and talk to them. And of course, I'd be remiss if I didn't talk about this. The significance of this story as it comes to the New Testament is that Pentecost is the reversal of this. Right? That's the significance of Pentecost. All the allusions in Acts 2 are to the fact that people of every tribe, nation, language, and clan hear the apostles speaking what? In their own tongues. In their own tongues. Mm -hmm. Pentecost is telling you that the punishment of Babel is being reversed. So that once again, humanity can, can be one people under its God. Right? That's powerful. Most people don't even recognize that when they get to Pentecost. Pentecost is undoing Babel. So that we can be one people united again. Right? That's the power of unity. But we needed the Spirit. We needed the Spirit so that our heart's desires wouldn't be evil. And with the Spirit poured out, we can be of one accord to do unimaginable, impossible things for good and not for evil. That's the power of Pentecost. So there we have it, the Tower of Babel. The Lord's confused their language. And of course, because Babel is because the language has been confused. The actual term for confused, it's a, it's a, it's a word based off of uh, sound, really. The word for confused is Balal, but it sounds like Babel. And so they make that 
that uh, assertion here that it's, it's called Babel because there the languages were confused. In Babylonian, Babel means gates of the gods, right? They thought they were building something up to the gods. But this is it, the last judgment we see. And we're left waiting, right? We're left waiting thinking, man, what more is going to happen to humanity? What next? What's the next judgment? What's the next awful thing to happen? And of course, what's the next story we read about? It's actually the story of the start of God choosing a people so that people will be redeemed, isn't it? It's the story of Abram. As soon as we reach Genesis 12, the focus is shifted to one man who will start the process that God is beginning towards salvation. Right? He, he will bear the promises that we have waited for until Christ and that we are still now receiving as people who come into the kingdom of God, still receiving the promises of Abraham. A land a seed, and a blessing. The title of the series. A land, a seed, and a blessing. And we're going to see that even more clearly as we get to Abraham. And he's given those three promises for a land, a seed, and a blessing. The three things we're still waiting for. That we're still hoping for. Now we have it. Uh, I shouldn't say we are, but the, but the Bible writers are waiting for it. We have it. We have the seed. Jesus, as Paul talks about. We have the blessing Paul talks about in Galatians 4, or 3, excuse me, Galatians 3. Being the Spirit of God, that all the families of the earth would be blessed through Abraham. Oddly enough, the thing we're still waiting for is the land, the kingdom of God, the new Jerusalem that is to be, the new heavens and new earth. Of course, we need Jesus to return for that to take place. But the promises, in a large way, have been fulfilled to us. We can't see at this point. If you're standing there at Genesis 11, you you have no idea what's coming, and no idea how long it will take. But the Lord is still being merciful, even then, even in this judgment, He's still merciful. All right, let me pray as we close. Lord, we thank you for this night. Thank you for the chance to talk about your word. Lord, again, I, I just say that we thankful, we're thankful your judgment even is uh, to correct our paths and to lead us towards righteousness. Lord, who knows what great evil these people would have accomplished if you had not intervened. <clears throat> who knows what satanic purposes they would have set in motion if we uh, would have been left to our own devices. And by your grace and your power, you made a different way, a different path. But even amongst that, we're grateful for Pentecost, grateful for the reversal of this, that we could be one people again, united by your spirit. A bond stronger than any other bond of humans is the bond that we share in Jesus because we all have drank of your spirit. And so we're grateful for that. Would you give us a fresh taste again of your spirit so that we might again be united be better lovers of each other of people and of you god we pray all these things in your name amen, amen.